Well, it's arguably one of the hardest things that Jesus ever said. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Oftentimes when we think about that, we would like a definition of terms. Uh, Jesus, what did you mean by love? And what did you mean by enemies? Answering those questions are really hard, but very important. We're grateful today to have Reverend Gary Mason to offer an exploration of that text and how it applies for us. Gary Mason is the executive director of Rethinking Conflict, an organization that uses principles from the Good Friday Peace Accord to broker peace conversations in conflicted areas around the world. He's the perfect person, not just to explore this hard text with us, but to draw to a close our three-week series on the Jesus Challenge. Let's listen. Interesting text for today, isn't it? McGray uh, purposely gave me this difficult text to play about with. Love your enemies, forgive your enemies, those people who possibly want to kill you. During the Northern Irish conflict, which I grew up in as a young boy, well into adulthood, which as many folk know came to an end, thankfully, with the signing of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. You can imagine that as church leaders and religious actors, we had to wrestle with these concepts. Loving those who want to kill you, take your land, to destroy your way of life. And in that Northern Irish space over a period of 30 years, in a very, very tiny population of 1.6 million people, we had 47,000 injuries, 36,000 shootings, 30,000 people went through our penal system with 16,000 bombings and almost 4,000 deaths. I often remind my colleagues in the US that very simply put, if the Northern Irish conflict had have taken place in the United States over that 30-year window, you would have had 700,000 deaths, 6 million political prisoners, 9 million injuries, seven million shootings, and three million bombings. Love your enemies after moving through an internal civil war. But then things haven't changed, going way, way back to those uh, religious wars in Europe of another generation. In the winter of 1569, a Dutch Anabaptist made a daring escape from a prison where he's being held by the Roman Catholic authorities. And as he moved away from his prison warden across a frozen lake, the guard was carrying a little bit more weight than this Anabaptist and plunged into the freezing waters. He cried out for help. The Anabaptist stopped in his tracks, didn't move forward, went back and saved the guard's life, his enemy's life. But the guard's life being saved didn't win him a reprieve. Eventually, he was burned at the stake, May the 16th, 1569, crying out those words, Oh my Lord, my God. Does this text today seem like some uh, fusty, musty, dusty relic that sounds good in the rarefied atmosphere of Hyde Park on an early fall morning? Or can texts like this actually spill into the public space? I mean, what did Jesus even mean? Forgive those people who wrong you. Forgive your enemies. Forgive those who do wrong to you. 
Interestingly, in the book, The Sage from Galilee, the uh, brilliant Jewish scholar of Christianity, uh, David Fleischler notes that Jesus was the only person in all of the New Testament to give this ridiculous, it seems, command. Love your enemies. And he suggests very candidly, I think, that the silence of all the other New Testament writers suggests this command is pretty difficult. Praying for your persecutors is one thing, but loving them is another. And I guess that's the disturbing Jesus at his most radical. But then the question needs to be asked, when Jesus said enemy in the context of a Roman occupation in the first century, so remember the context, the jackboot of the most efficient military machine on planet Earth is on the neck of the Jews. And he says this to his disciples. Okay, Jesus, who are you exactly telling us to love? I must confess, if I had been a disciple then, I'd have kind of drilled down, Jesus, who are you referring to? He doesn't tell us. But let's, in church this morning, make a few guesstimates together. Ah, the Pharisees are kind of Jesus' uh, theologically spurring partners. Of course, Jesus argued with the Pharisees. But however... Maybe it wasn't the Pharisees. Maybe it was those Roman occupiers. Because we all know if we've ever been under occupation, the experiences of a nation mean they are most definitely the enemy. But of course, Gary, that interpretation is not that simple. Why do I say that? Because Jesus comes out with a ridiculous, outlandish statement as he engages with a Roman occupier, part of the most efficient military machine on planet Earth, and he says, I haven't seen so great faith in all of Israel. Jesus, why do you make these things so complex and difficult? On the other hand, perhaps it was those people who were in collaboration with the Romans. Tax collectors. I suppose if I mention tax in the United States, we all go, really? Mention it in Britain and Ireland, we all go, really? Interesting to quote a former president of yours, Bill Clinton, who was in Belfast in April, uh, just past, celebrating 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement. And he did stay for a pretty long time and come out with this quip on the last day, I'm going back home to America because if I stay any longer, I think the Irish authorities will be taxing me. Even a former president of the United States struggles with those tax collectors because they were collaborators. They were traitors in bed with the occupying forces. But then if we drill further into some of those New Testament texts, there's actually another group who were always against Jesus, people in positions of political and social power. Do you remember when he flipped over all those tables in the temple? In Luke's Gospel, chapter 19 and verse 46, they were religious and political elites. They also had made alliances with the Roman occupiers. So which group was it? I think we could all say kind of categorically today as we celebrate church together, the marginalized Jesus, yeah, I get that. The downtrodden, yeah, get that, okay. The homeless person at the side of the street, mm, getting that okay. The outcast, they're, they're pretty easy people to love. 
Because I think loving those kind of people just makes me feel like Jesus or the person you flip a dollar to at the side of the road. But remember the outcast was not the enemy. The downtrodden was not the enemy. What about those in power who abuse power for their own interests? Mm, Let's be honest, I find them pretty easy to hate. But you ask me to love them? That's just a little bit more complex. And to me, actually, incredibly difficult. Now, it's no state secret, as we begin early September 2023 in the United States, as a person who's been here over 100 times, and have hosted hundreds of American leaders religiously in the Northern Irish context, America is pretty divided. That's not going to shock you in church this morning if you're a Democrat or a Republican. That's not going to come as a tsunami this Sunday morning. But I read a fascinating article that I just wanted to share with you. The article was entitled, Loving Enemies is Hard at a Post-Impeachment Prayer Breakfast. Let me quote from this writer. So we're inside uh, the International Ballroom at the prestigious Washington Hilton, and the mood at this national prayer breakfast was half church service and half political rally. Probably no shock there. The program begins with a real brilliant rendition of Hank Williams' I Saw the Light that was led by members of the House Representatives Prayer Breakfast Group. Then a Republican from Michigan Pred and a Democrat from New York. And really their prayers and their opening remarks echoed the larger theme of the prayer breakfast, which was held back in 2020. And the theme was, shocker, Jesus' command to love your enemies. The event's keynote speaker was the well-known Harvard University professor, Arthur Brooks. And he urged all these politicals gathered in the room Don't let your disagreements over politics lead to contempt. And then he tells this amazing story. He says, I remember speaking to a group of conservative activists and telling them your political opponents are neither evil nor stupid. The line he said did not get much applause. But he went on to talk about Christian parents, followers of Jesus, raised in Seattle as Arthur was, And they had progressive politics. He said to these conservatives, trust me, my my parents are not evil. Neither are my parents stupid. And he challenged listeners to remember their loved ones who have different points of view and to stand up for those who would ridicule them. Brooks also said Jesus asked his followers to love their enemies. Not just tolerate them. Putting them into practice, he candidly admitted, was pretty difficult. But then he asked the crowd in Washington, D.C., prayer breakfast, 2020, how many of you love somebody with whom you disagree politically? Many people actually in the audience did raise their hands. Some didn't. I will not name them and shame them in church this morning. We're not about that. But when the Democratic person who led the prayer at the opening of the breakfast said this, 
If we are to heal our divisions with those with whom we disagree and class as our enemy, we need to spend time together. And his words really echoed a larger belief of the fellowship, which is the non-profit that puts on your national prayer breakfast. Uh, members of the group describe themselves as friends who get together to talk about the teachings of Jesus. The group positions itself open to other faiths, but the theme is distinctly Christian. Towards the end of that breakfast, the civil rights legend and Georgia congressman, John Lewis, who at that stage was battling cancer, gave the benediction by video. He asked the attendees to join hands. So you may have been holding the hand of an enemy, a political enemy with whom you disagree, and by their heads. But he said, this country needs peace more than ever. Now more than ever, Lewis asked God to bring the country together and prayed Americans would treat each other as brothers and sisters. And in his prayer, Lewis recalled facing death when he was beaten while crossing the Edmund Peters Bridge in Selma, Alabama on a civil rights march. He said, I never hated the people who beat me. Because I choose the way of peace, the way of love, the way of nonviolence. He said, I never gave up because God helped me. And he urged the attendees to become one family. Lewis said, we must believe in one another. We must never give up on our fellow human beings. Genesis 50 and verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. As Jesus is bruised, bloodied, and battered, hanging on a Roman cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Job, as he wrestles with those unanswerable questions, and I often remark on the book of Job, we have an advantage. That's kind of New Testament. Christians have an advantage. Because we know what happened to Job. We saw the, the pushing by the evil one. Give him to me, God, for a while, and I will challenge and deal with his faith. Job said, if I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, or exalted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. Peter writes, do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, so that you may obtain a blessing. Paul writes, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving, because God has forgiven you. Let me take you back in time, like 40 years, this Christmas Day coming, most of us will wake up scurrying around our trees, flinging paper across living rooms and dining rooms. But this Christmas, I want you to remember something that happened on Christmas Day, 1983, in the Eternal City room. 
And Pope John Paul II had gone into the Rabiba prison to meet Mehmet Ala Alaga, who was the Turkish-born terrorist who had attempted to murder him two years previously. And if you remember those scenes, the uh, television cameras recorded that worldless scene that literally made an indelible impression in a world saturated by bigotry, hatred, terrorism, and bloodshed. The two men talked, their, their heads, pretty close together in a very bare prison room as they sat in two seats together. And naturally, when the Pope emerged from the media, the, the world's media scrum was around him. They said, Holy Father, what did you say to him? The person that tried to kill you, your enemy, what did you say? The Pope paused and said, what we talked about will remain a secret between him and me. But I spoke to him as a brother whom I pardoned. Two weeks later, Time magazine, not the Methodist Chronicle or the Presbyterian Herald or the Baptist News, Time magazine, a secular magazine, picks the story up. I remember the cover. I was subscribing to Time magazine at that stage. The front cover was in black with a red question mark and two words. Why forgive? And the senior writer Lance Morrow said this. Christ preached forgiveness. The loving of one's enemies. It's at the center of the New Testament. But stated nakedly, uh, superficially, the proposition sounds perverse, even self-destructive, an invitation to disaster. And he says very candidly and honestly, I mean, forgiveness is not an impulse that is in much favor. It's a kind of mysterious and uh, sublime idea in many ways. The prevalent style in the world runs much more to the mentality of the high plains drifter to the hard, cold eye of the avenger, to a numb remorselessness. And then Lance Morrow finishes with two lines that was not written in a Christian magazine, but I can tell you now I'm quoting them off the top of my head 40 years later. He said, forgiveness does not look like a tool for survival in a bad world. But that is exactly what it is. Forgiveness does not look like a tool for survival in a bad world. But that is exactly what it is. Okay, Jesus. Love your enemies. Pray for those who hate you. And if these ancient texts are correct, and they shape our lives, shape your life, my life, in two different contexts. They divided America politically, concerned in the run-in to November 2024. In a space like ours, dealing with legacy after 30 years of bloody internal violence, when neighbor was killing neighbor, when it was very easy to know out who your enemy was. Jesus says, I still carry on this example 
today. Because those sacred texts tell you and they tell me that Jesus is praying for us today. His enemies, separated by sin, separated by lifestyle. So even after he uttered that command 2,000 years ago on the dusty plains of the Middle East, it's so important. He still does it today, September 2023. And as the text simply said, I just want you to go and do likewise. Amen. Folk, I just want us to take a moment's silence. And you will make your own response, as I will. I want you to think of a person who you class as an enemy. Maybe it's a former lover, partner, business colleague. Or maybe it's one of those Democrats or Republicans who I just don't fundamentally like. And I don't want to ask yourself the question, what should I do? I want to ask one question. What does, not Gary Mason, what does Jesus want me to do? So let's just take a moment's quiet. As we all know, gracious God, one of the reasons faith spread so rapidly in that ancient world that some historical writers are asking the question about Christians, look how they love each other. I guess 40 years ago, if they had a look at the Irish context, it might have been more appropriate to say, look how they hate each other. And if we want to be candid and honest today in church, in a place that we're meant to be honest. I imagine many outsiders look at those within the US political context, Republicans, Democrats, who are claiming to be followers of Jesus, and I'm sure many of them are not asking the question or making the statement, wow, look how those Democrats and Republicans just love each other. But yet Jesus says we are to love those with whom we disagree. We're to take our shirt off. We're to pick up people who are beaten at roadsides. We're to love the unlovable. And that's really what makes Christianity radical, decisive, and different. That's when people sit up and take notice. We bemoan the decline of the church. I often suggest the reason why the church is in decline is because of the church, not because of growing secularization. Because we don't take seriously those commands. Love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you. Live a righteous lifestyle. Lay up your treasure in heaven. So maybe, just maybe today, Holy Spirit, you'll push us, prod us, prompt us to take this serious. Because as I've often commented, politics is temple. The gospel is eternal. So maybe just maybe in church today, in Hyde Park United Methodist Church, we'll begin to wrestle with something that lasts, 
namely the eternal gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. We are so grateful for Gary Mason for helping us define the terms of what love means, not just a sentimental feeling towards people, but active forgiveness and prayer. And enemies, there's a whole list of people that perhaps came to mind as you were listening to Gary talk about peace in your relationships, peace with people who are different from you, and peace across the polarized ideological lines that define who we are today. I hope that something in this sermon tugged at you for you to apply in your life later this week. We invite you to take a look at the reflection questions that are in the notes as part of our video today, where you'll also find directions to our Next Steps page on our website, where you can take the next step in your spiritual journey, perhaps even join a small group. We're glad that you've joined us here. My name is McGray DeVega, the senior pastor. Hope to see you next week. <music>